0: All right, morning to everybody. Start as usual with uh, the introductions between our Zoom audience and our uh, in-person audience here at Wilton Roads. So joining us on Zoom this morning, we have uh, Cynthia, Jeff and Ryan. And here at uh, Wilton, we have Brannigan and Cindy and Paul, Scott, and Mark, and John, our guests of honor, (laughs) and Chuck and Keith, with uh, a few more that'll be joining us uh, later just for the ordination, which hopefully uh, everybody will will be with us for. So this morning, I, I'm going to keep my comments briefer than usual, just so that we can kind of condense uh, the morning's practice into basically three hours from the opening bell at uh, 830 till the ordination at 1130. So in the interest of that, uh, I just had a few things I wanted to say. And really to start, before I'm going to turn it over to John uh, for a bit, uh, but what's, what's kind of been coming up for me as, uh, as we entered into this day of practice is a koan that, that I uh, worked with a number of years ago, a very simple one. It's kind of, it's uh, just about as simple as the moo koan. There's just a question, does a dog have uh, Buddha nature? Actually, it's even simpler because in moo there is an answer, moo. This is just the question. Why do you put on the, the robes at the sound of the bell? Why do we practice? Why do we do these forms? Why do we have priests? Obviously a lot of sanghas have that question and uh, they've answered that. They don't have priests. They're not interested in that. Don't want to have any of the forms or rituals. And that's one way of answering the koan. I mean, like most koans, it's not that you get your list of, of correct answers. The important thing is to take that koan on. So you've actually looked into it. And if you are going to wear robes and have priests and follow forms and rituals, that you've looked into that deeply. And and you have a sense that can't be fully articulated. So far but you get this sense of why, why do you do this? How does it support your practice? Because if it doesn't, then of course, obviously, you shouldn't be doing any of those things. It's about supporting our practice for the support of of all beings, ultimately, in all the various paths, and aspects that that entails. So I know it's a question that John's been working with, anybody working towards ordination. It's kind of, you can't avoid it. You can't evade it, it's there. And for those of us that come to share this with him. You should be asking that too. Why is it important? Why are we here to share this with John? And as part of looking deeply into that, it takes us right into the heart of the three treasures, which the first, 16 precepts that we'll be getting into a little later during the ordination itself. Taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So, wearing robes, practicing forms, having ordination ceremonies ultimately is. Another support to our practice, just like the 16 precepts, they're supports. They're not the ultimate, but they support us on our path to live in the ultimate. One of the Buddhist teachings, warnings, is not to attach, cling, to form and ritual. Of course, some can look at that and take away from that teaching the notion that, oh, we should, <laughs> we should stay clear of those. That's not what he was saying. So don't attach and cling to that. And that's pretty rock-solid teaching, but it doesn't equate to not using them as supports for practice. But as soon as we cling and attach to them, they stop being supports to our practice. Actually, they become hindrances, just like anything else that we might cling or attach to. So as is true for all these aspects of our practice, they can support us or they can actually hinder us. And a colon, like, why, why do I put on the robes at the sound of the bell? It's a way of looking into that. to hold all of these practices dearly, but with open hands. As we've practiced, a number of us, including John, have practiced with these forms over many years. And they do become treasured because of the way they support our practice. but in and of themselves, no value. Being a priest, we, because of our, our mindset, we tend to think in terms of hierarchy. It's not what it's about. It's about supporting practice. And as we deepen our practice, for some of us, that does involve going through ordinations like Jukai, priest ordination. And the one thing I would say that kind of accompanies us on that path is through the deepening that occurs with the passage of time and the devotion to the practice. So that it's kind of the way practice brings us to deeper levels of dropping off of sense of self. I think it's safe to say that probably all of us first entered into practice as a (laughs) self-help method. You know, uh, we were in it because we wanted to better ourselves and we saw the spiritual path as as a way of, of accomplishing. But we keep hearing these teachings right from the very beginning about it's not about them. We need to let that go. Of course, that takes some time. It's not like we first hear that that teaching and we go, oh, yeah, okay, done. (laughs) Kind of like Dogen's response to reaching body, body and mind dropped away. Yeah, I mean, Dogen could say that because he'd been practicing for over 10 years since he was a kid. So before he even arrived in China, he he had some Zen moxie to him. And after a couple of years over there, he was ready for his true teacher. So it takes time. But it's important to, during that time that we keep hearing that. And then when it starts to sink in, that we start to, to have that understanding, that realization that it really isn't about. Me. It's just the practice. The practice, practice transcends any individual. So we feel like we're part of something greater. So we talk in terms of this experience of oneness. non-dual approach, view of reality, and we start to, that starts to color our experience more regularly and deeper and deeper. But this isn't contingent upon being a priest or receiving Dharma transmission. Dharma transmission and priest ordination and Jukai, all of these are just ways within the world of this and that of supporting that for self and for, for others, especially within a Sangha. especially within a song. So, as I said, uh, John has been, been practicing with this uh, as he's worked over these past several years towards priest ordination. So he uh, has written lovely uh, piece of poetry that uh, that he's going to share with us this morning. So now, I'm going to plug this in. Maybe yeah, I want to make sure everybody hears this very Select your speakers. Check it out of We'll see. Uh, Cynthia, when he starts talking, just try to hold up your hand if, uh, if you're having trouble making out what he said. Okay. A journey. When a person attains realization, it's like the moon's reflection in water. The moon never becomes wet. The water is never disturbed. Although the moon is vast and great light, it is reflected in a drop of water. The whole moon and even the whole sky are reflected in a drop of dew on a blade of grass. Hey, hey, Dogen. First conversation. So when are you gonna be a priest? Never. Second conversation, why did you ask that? You seemed ready. Three more conversations, three different Zen teachers. I don't know enough, gentle laugh or wise smile, and some variation on that's what I thought too. But will the robes fit me? Stitching begins, Thousands of refuges in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Is this really what I want? Do I want the increased commitment, more responsibility? Is this my true belief? Is this how I want to spend the rest of my life? A hundred questions pondered. Some great, some small. Most had answers, but none quite satisfying. Pleasure. Just thoughts from a different source inside came a different answer. Every day vowed to fill the roads. And so I choose, I, no I, but no, no I either. All things are subject to causes and conditions, but only them or is one of those causes and conditions some degree of choice? Does it really matter? The sun rises, rivers flow to the ocean, and the mountains both walk and peacefully lie. Thank you, Jeff. So this great matter that we're gathering together here, usually twice a week to to explore together, to assist one another in deepening the practice. And that's true no matter how long any of us have been practicing. My practice is way deeper than it would be without a Crooked River Zen Center, without the group of people that regularly comes together here to practice and support me. There tends to be this sense that oh, it's, it's the teachers that are, that are, the, the, the benefactors, we're the recipients. It's the, the wheel of, of giver, receiver, and gift. And the emptiness of all three of those aspects of reality, which is really getting to the heart of what we. Practice here. Uh, the three, three uh, parts of that wheel. And a recent book I read, because it's not a Buddhist book, it has, for me, the, the richest of Buddhist teachings. <laughs> really had a massive impact on me in terms of, and the fact that it coincided with our working with Mountains and Water Sutra made it all the more impactful because this is about uh, the mountains and the waters, the title of the book. And I mentioned it before when we were studying that particular uh, uh, Sutra of Dogon's on Thursday nights. Uh, The title of the book is Finding the Mother Tree. Uh, The author is Suzanne Simard. And I first learned about it because she was in town virtually back uh, when the pandemic was even fiercer than it is now. Uh, She she was giving a lecture, uh, I believe it was at the Museum of Natural History. But it was on a Thursday night, so I couldn't tune in. But the time, the subject matter of the book intrigued me, so I didn't need to even hear the lecture. I just said, "I'm getting the book," and and I did. I read it. She's a uh, uh, forest ecologist, and it really boiled down. Her research uh, ended up becoming about the interconnectedness of the beings in the forest with with a special emphasis on the trees, hence the title, Finding the Mother Tree. She gravitated to where ultimately, it was about the kind of the, the sage, the Bodhisattva tree, you might call it. Because of it, because of its age, it towered above the other trees, which meant it was, uh, it was receiving all these nutrients because of all the sunlight it could absorb. Now, uh, if if the trees participated in a in a good capitalist society, you know, mother tree would be stockpiling all this stuff, building up a uh, a nice uh, portfolio of different nutrients but instead you know it's be, and and here is where mycorrhizal fungi enter into the picture once these nutrients come down into the tree's root system they spread out and they're shared and it and as her research deepened she came to discover that while the principal beneficiaries were relatives of of the mother tree, so to speak, but it wasn't limited to that. That actually other uh, trees from different species were also sometimes beneficiaries. And there was kind of a trading back and forth. At one time of the year, maybe uh, uh, things were good for one species and they would share the wealth through this network of interconnectedness. Indra's net in the forest consists of these root systems and and the the mycorrhizal fungi. Although there are other fungi that can also serve that purpose, but that's one of the principal ones. And that was a main topic of her uh, research. And then it took on a personal note for her because it's a book that's not just about ecology, but it's kind of an autobiographical sketch. So you follow her her life from childhood on and she uh, is diagnosed with breast cancer. And lo and behold, the the regimen of of chemo that they have her on, its its source is coming from the forest. (laughs) It's a, it's a natural product. So here, you know how how powerful but what she's been spent a career studying is now coming back and helping to save her life. And she comes to this realization in one short question, which is a kind of a colon. Most questions can be turned that way. She's, her, her question is, what am I if I don't give back? And this was the teaching she had received from all her work in the forest. What am I if I don't give back? And I know that's John's sense in anybody that's been practicing for any period of time and what they receive from others. Entering into formal practice is kind of like joining a forest and the the way we connect. And we're we're sharing through our uh, root systems of interconnecting. And ultimately, this practice comes down, I think, to this simple question, what am I if I don't give back? And then with a little further reflection on that, uh, she says, our modern societies have made the assumption that trees don't have the same capacities as humans. <laughs> kind of, we're looking now at on Thursday nights. Radical Dharma, uh, supported also by caste. So we we create a caste system for all life, and obviously the plant world is pretty low on that totem pole. We are superior beings. Trees don't have the same capacities as humans. That's the way we approach it. And we, we do ourselves great harm because of that, because there's so much we could learn from them. But we close that door because we're superior. They're a lower caste. And as is true with caste, it can't be changed. You can't train a tree. You can't educate a tree, a tree is a tree. And it's lower, that's our mindset, we classify them. And they did it. And she goes on to saying, they don't have nurturing instincts. It wasn't that long ago? I mean, that would, and she experienced this. I mean, when she first started publishing results of her research, she'd be completely ridiculed. That was crazy. Trees don't nurture, they don't care, they don't cure one another, don't administer care. But now we know mother trees can truly nurture their offspring. And Douglas firs, it turns out, recognize their kin and distinguish them from other families and different species. They communicate and send carbon, the building block of life, not just to the mycorrhizas of their kin, but to other members of the community to help keep it whole. Dogan spoke about the teachings of, of the uh, non-century. What are you talking about? And that's what, ultimately, this practice is. So, ordinations, forms, and rituals are ultimately about this. They're ways of actually connecting. As John and I were briefly discussing this morning before we got started, this having an ordination occur at the end of this process of working towards it, which becomes a lot of interior work, practice. But it's kind of when we get to this stage of it, it's, it's important and natural that it comes together here in, in this interpersonal connectedness, coming together to share in the ordination. Making a ceremony out of it, it doesn't have to be. Why do we do this? It's to make this practice. Real, not just stuff that float around in our head and feel good. Oh, yeah, I had a, a real deep realization, understanding. It's sending it out through the root system. It's not just keeping it in our head and our personal experience. It's to send it forth. So we come to practice with John so we can receive the benefit of his practice and we can return with our support. And that's how we're all linked up in this practice. This is taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. It has to be concrete. Otherwise, it's just feel-good Buddhism. It could become another one of the Buddhist traditions. It has to really become something that does transcend each and every one of us individually. And that's how it happens. It's through interdependence. This basic truth of the nature of reality that Buddhism teaches us. That's why we're here. That's why <laughs> some of us put on robes, and light candles, and burn incense, and, and strike bells, pound on mokugyos and arrange seats but not to entice guests (laughs) just in case they show up (laughs) i want to make sure they feel welcome because we deeply appreciate anybody that comes to share their practice Who are we if we don't give back? Central colon for all of us. So that's enough for me. Leave some time for any comments. Anybody else would like to make? the main event yeah. See? thank you John for sharing that poem. we know how much oh and you love anybody poetry. anybody who's speaking may be uh, mindful of, of the microphone yeah so that I zoom okay. on so so John thank you for sharing that wonderful poem we know you love poetry so it was awesome Years I have seen you practicing and inspired me so many ways. question the answer. So, insightful questions so challenging for us all. challenge not <laughs> I try not to show it. <laughs> 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 I would never do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not <laughs> 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 Thank you, John, for your poem. And I hope I get to read it again because I still miss some of it. And for the tying ending of the trees and what am I if I don't give back at all. It's a beautiful painting in my mind right now. And um, thank you both and for all of you for being. If that's your copy. Maybe you could send us all a copy of Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I won't do that. Step ahead of me, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> Well, when I look over at John, he's anxious to get upstairs and start uh, <laughs> getting some robes out. <laughs> Mentioning that co I see the beads of sweat on your face. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to be All right, so it is now 1028. So we have exactly an hour between now and the ordination, but it'll take some time to get things uh, organized, so um, I'm not going to ask that we we maintain the silence, but if we could keep it from becoming just a wide open party time. That's after the ordination.